Louise, thank you so much. I went to finish slamming doors. <laughs> <laughs> Take two. Take two. Louise, thank you so much for joining us on another You podcast. We are delighted to have you here. And uh, I'm sorry, Paul, that I've missed the last two. You've missed me. I've, I've missed you and I do not accept your apology. Oh. Why? <laughs> Why? That's because, a heartfelt apology. Because you didn't bring your guitar. Oh. And you said you would bring your guitar. Mm, well, yeah, I, I didn't bring my guitar, but I brought water. That's true. <laughs> which, brought, is the, which is the source of life. And I bought, and I brought, brought Louise. A, yes. great, a great guest. I brought Louise. Now, um, Louise, you'll have a, a, a little moment in the, the spotlight to introduce yourself in a minute. But um, I'm, I'm really super excited, excited about Louise because um, this is a moment where, um, or a podcast, a full podcast, when we get to talk about something that I'm passionate about too, and that's children and young people. Great. Mm -hmm. um, children, young people and mental health. And um, and also, Louise is my pal. Yep. yep. For her sins. <laughs> <laughs> yep. um, and Louise also is the professional podcaster. Oh my goodness. Which I is going to put us to shame. I feel like professional is a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> I do a podcast, some people listen to it. <laughs> um, Louise and I uh, first met almost two years ago. No, two years ago at Christmas oh, time. Oh jeez, it would have been, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. When we first worked for uh, a Scottish mental health charity, working with children and young people. Um, and we both don't work for that charity anymore. We're both going our separate ways yep. into, into the field, but still working with children and young people. Louise, do you want to tell everybody uh, who you are? What yeah. you do? Um, so my name's Louise. I have a really quite a long history at this point in time in working with children and young people. I've worked all across different... I've worked in the third sector for mm, eight years now. Um, and it's always been mostly always been with children and young people. I've worked with young people with learning disabilities and kind of um, neurodevelopmental disorders like um, autism, ADHD, things like that. Yeah. I've worked with care experienced young people. I've worked with um, young people and families who are maybe kind of struggling financially and things like that. Um, and kind of most recently I've moved more into the mental health realm in terms of working with young people and, um, you know, teachers, carers, parents, staff, um, who are involved in young people's lives and kind of talking to them about mental health and kind of really spreading that that word and kind of trying to break down that stigma that exists about mental health. So, yeah, um, that's that's me. That's you. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, really broad history. Mm -hmm. Um, really experienced. And when we first uh, met, almost two years ago. Yeah. Can't believe you're still uh, working with me. Yeah, <laughs> Paul can't believe you're still for your sins. No, yeah, for yeah. your sins, you're stuck with me. Anything over a couple of months is a result. <laughs> um, we were working um, closely with schools. Mm -hmm. um, I know that's been a big part of your journey. Yep. Um, and you're going to be continuing to work with schools and with um, frontline services mm -hmm. in your new role, um, and particularly around self harm. Yeah. And that's a topic I would quite like to cover today. Mm -hmm. um, I read a statistic when we were talking in the car coming here that um, in 2019, the Scottish government released um, some, some figures that in low areas of, or sort of high areas of, sorry, of, of de a deprivation, that 15% of people uh, were engaged in self-harm mm -hmm. behaviours. And, and across the board, loneliness crept into that as well. Yeah. That's pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. So your job must be even busier now. Yeah, the pandemic has had such a massive impact on, you know, everybody adults, young people, but young people in particular have really, really struggled 
post-pandemic for a number of different reasons as well. I've noticed quite a lot of different reasons with the young people that I've been working with. So obviously you're talking about areas of, of low deprivation and sometimes you can have young people who maybe don't have the kind of strongest family background or strongest family support through for for many many reasons and there's nobody who's particularly at fault for that um but they maybe don't have the strongest support of family so you have young people who were really really negatively impacted by the pandemic because they were stuck at home we were all in lockdown and lockdown was maybe okay for you if you did have a, a supportive family and, and people that you enjoy spending time with but if you don't have that kind of network at home that can be really really difficult for young people the opposite side of that is that young people who do have supportive families spent a really really long time in this really supportive nurturing environment where we were all doing our best to make do and, and get through and then they had to come back to school and then they had to start interacting with people again for some young people, especially who were maybe in that, a lot of the work that I've done in my pastoral um, was about transitions and those transition periods from primary school into secondary school and then secondary school into, for, you know, the big bad world, yeah, as yeah. it were. Those are really difficult points for young people anyway. But for a lot of young people, they missed all the support that they would get around that transition. So usually when a young person moves from primary school to secondary school the school staff would go down to the school and they would introduce themselves and they would get to come up to the school and they would have visits and get to do things in the classrooms and all of that stopped because of the pandemic so they were moving up to a high school with you some one of the schools I worked in had seven primary seven pupils and they came to a school that had 180 first year wow. pupils wow. and that's such a massive massive thing so if you've gone from this really small nurturing environment to this massive big environment yeah. it can be really really hard and in terms of when you're asking about self-harm, self-harm is a coping strategy. We all have coping strategies. Some people like to run, not me. Some people like to oh. run. <laughs> yeah. You're one of those people, yes, Paul. Yeah, yeah, I am yeah, not one yeah. of those people. Yeah. Uh, some people like Something's to Something's chasing read. me if I'm running. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I might just let it get me, depending on what it is, <laughs> depending on the day. Um, I'll miss the boss. I'll get the next one. But, yeah. um, you know, some people like to read. Some people like to play music. Some people like to talk with their friends. Some people like to have a glass of wine, whatever your coping mechanism it's self-harm as a coping mechanism okay. it's a coping strategy mm -hmm. and in the time of the pandemic a lot of our coping strategies were taken away from us we couldn't just go and see our friends we couldn't go and talk to our guidance teacher at school we if if home wasn't necessarily a safe space to have conversations so self-harm i think is something that maybe quite a few people would potentially be turning to obviously because of the pandemic we don't necessarily have stats to say at this point in time yeah. they're doing a lot of work on stats and you'll know from your time at when we work together working in mental health around kind of like suicide prevention and self-harm we're still trying to gather the stats right. from the pandemic yeah. because again it's a really difficult thing to get stats about because if i say to you have you ever harmed yourself mm -hmm. me me no 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 yeah. um but that might not be the case right. um and a lot of the stats that we get around self-harm are actually from hospital admissions and a large majority or and i can i mean this in terms of people i know personally uh, who engage in self-harm behaviors have never been in hospital for self-harm have never been identified by services as people who so engage they're all in under the radar so they're all under the radar mm -hmm. so yeah. the stats that we have might not be similar with all mental health stats might not be accurate Sorry, yeah. might not be accurately reflecting actually yeah. how many people are engaging in it. And and just in terms of so your history with young people, mm -hmm. was that was that something you drove towards out of passion, or was it something you just ended up in and 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 it's carried on from there as, as a kind of specialization? 
that you have in terms of working with young people yeah so I always wanted to work with young people when I was younger I wanted to be a doctor I wanted to be a pediatrician and I watched one episode of Born Every Minute and that went out the window (laughs) (laughs) because I cried through the entire episode and thought I'm not going to be able to do this as a career Um, but I did I did want to study medicine when I was younger I didn't study hard enough at school guys study um, if there's any young people listening to this read the books read the books do the work the teachers know what they're talking about I didn't study hard enough and I ended up going to do psychology um, a couple afternoons a week when I was in high school and I got a hire in psychology and I thought this is amazing I absolutely love it I'm so interested in why people do the what things they do. that they yeah. do yeah. studied psychology at uni with the end game of going on to do educational psychology with working with young people in schools and communities to go into educational psychology at the time you had before you could apply for the master's degree you had to do two years full-time work experience they called it but you know get a job working with children and young people and I kind of fell into a role of working with a learning disability charity and I would go out to schools and I did it was employability so I would go out to these ASN schools additional support needs schools and we would do workshops on how to dress for an interview how to write a CV what to write in a job application how to go for you know your college interviews and I would teach young people all of these different skills and from there I've just kind of moved around from job to job and after a few years I was like I don't want to go back to university and do educational psychology um and I've just kind of moved you know I've I've got counseling qualifications I'm going to do a diploma in counseling soon as well I've just kind of moved with the times but it's always been I've moved away from working with young people a couple of times I've worked with adults and I no offense guys I don't really like adults (laughs) 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 young people I'm like yeah that's fine um young people always yeah Yeah. that's it um although they always say don't work with children or animals but those are the ones (laughs) on on the self-harm side is Mm -hmm. there is there I know you talked about data being maybe not as accurate as it could be but is there more prevalence of self-harm in in younger people than there are for example in adults or, or or is it actually um you know kind of relatively uniform throughout i can't really give you any like statistics uh-huh. on that from kind of just personal experience of, i've had of, of working with people and adults that i know in my personal life who engage in self-harm a lot of it it's a continuation into adulthood so right, sometimes okay. it starts when they're got younger it, and it. it it becomes this coping strategy that they use that continues into adulthood in terms of adults who start self-harming I'm not I'm not really sure okay. on that. Another thing to think about as well is um what we traditionally think of as self-harm. So a lot of the time people think, you know, cutting themselves. Yeah. That's what self-harm is. But there's actually a lot of different ways that you can harm yourself and it's more about why you're doing the behavior. So yeah. for example, if you think, I always think about the iceberg, right? So you've got this this tip of the iceberg and you've got the kind of ocean mm-hmm. and then you've got this underneath all of the iceberg. Beneath, yeah. Right? It's yeah. all the underneath. Yeah bits that are driving the behavior right yes. so it's the maybe the educational attainment or the pressures at home mm-hmm. or a mental health challenge or uh social media mm-hmm. driving some behavior or you know all that bit stuff that's underneath yeah that's driving the coping mechanism so and the self-harm behavior might be alcohol abuse it might be mm-hmm. smoking too much it might be that bottle of wine that you know you're going home to have that that society's not um, you know, placing so much stigma on, but actually mm-hmm. it escalates to become self-harm uh, behaviour. And it's know? really interesting because self-harm, I love the way you described it. You know, for, for, for me, I think there's a, a lot of people, a lot of people 
uh, almost everyone, I think, to some extent, self-harms. Um, yes, so, absolutely. You know, wh- whether that's because logically, again, we, we know that getting, you know, really restful sleep is important. Mm-hmm. We know that eating the right things is important. We know that too much of anything is normally bad, you know, uh, food, alcohol, yep. mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is. Um, and yet, you know, we, we still we still do it, don't mm-hmm. we? So yep. so we're kind of self-harming. And I don't know whether it's subconscious mm-hmm. Or whether it's conscious but optimistic. So what I mean by that is, I know this is bad for me, but I'll be all right. It's that cognitive dissonance, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Of you know, you always the, the classic example of cognitive dissonance is smoking because I smoke because it makes me feel less stressed yeah. or whatever your reason is for smoking. But I also know it's bad for me, and it becomes that which side of the balance tips in the favour of the behaviour. Um, and I think what you were talking about, Maeve, it's it's the understanding that it's iceberg, the roots, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, of, you know, and we might have positive coping strategies, you know, you might every night for a week drink half a bottle of wine when you come home from work and then you go, actually, no, I need to, I need to stop this. I'm going to go back. I'm going to start my meditation again. Yep. I'm going to start running again or yep. whatever it is. Yep. If you don't have air quotes, positive coping mechanisms to fall back on. If no one's ever taught you positive coping mechanisms, if you've never been shown how to do that, you don't have anything to fall back on. You're always going to fall back on these. What, unhelpful. Unhelpful yeah. or society, societally taboo, yeah. you know, uh, coping strategies. So it, like it, drinking it, and things like that. Is, isn't and the just stay with you as you get to adulthood. Yeah. 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 It, it, isn't the challenge though that intervention often only happens after there's an issue yeah and, we, and, and actually yeah, it's we about, talked about it's that about, before yeah, we? Yeah. yeah we talked about this earlier on uh-huh. actually about the idea that and it's completely understandable why it happens that what we want to do is we want to stop the self-harm behavior because absolutely we do nobody wants to think of a person harming themselves especially if it's somebody that you you work with if it's a family member somebody that you, you love and you, care about yeah, absolutely you love, don't yeah. you don't want to know or think about the fact that they're hurting themselves but actually, if that's a coping strategy and we take that away from them and they don't have another coping strategy, what do they do? How do they cope with these overwhelming feelings that they're feeling? So that's why it's we were talking about this, the, the sort of harm minimization or the harm reduction models. People might be more familiar with it in terms of like needle exchanges and, you know, clean rooms and things where people can okay. go and safely tape drugs. Yep. That's a form of harm minimization or harm reduction. It's the idea that stopping you from taking drugs is not the main issue right now we need to get to the root of why you start to taking drugs and why you use that as a coping mechanism how that's functioning for you so we're going to minimize the risk to yourself Mm -hmm. by providing you with safe needles we're going to provide you a space where you can come and take drugs safely where you'll be until we can get to the root of why yes how does that behavior benefit you yeah exactly to trauma-informed yeah trauma-informed practice is absolutely where we need to go with self-harm as well so it's that we talked about this the kind of convergence of trauma-informed practice and harm minimization of eventually hopefully the the aim is that they will converge together and the person will get to a point where they are at a point of recovery that works for them um, in terms of how they how they use self-harm. And I think, again, that's really important in terms of if we're being recovery-focused, recovery looks different for everyone. Mm-hmm. So not everybody will stop drinking alcohol completely mm-hmm. if that's, that's their coping yep. mechanism. But can we get them to a point where they are able to 
minimize the risk mm -hmm. sorry where they're able to minimize the risk of their their alcohol intake or and, and behaviors that might come from that that's a really interesting um thing for us as a, a digital health um technology company because recovery um is, a, is an aspirational point maybe for us but actually mm -hmm. the other end of the scale for us is prevention mm -hmm. yeah and what does prevention look like for us in this kind of digital world especially mm -hmm. with children and young people you know, who are maybe learning these coping strategies around self-harm, which you're right, might not be cutting or burning or mm -hmm. or, or, or any of these behaviours, but in a kind of social media-driven, mm -hmm. technology-driven world of that we are very, very aware of and conscious of as a digital technology company. Um, you know, we don't want to be um, prescriptive. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we definitely don't want to be, be that. Um, you know, we're always looking at how we can work alongside children and young people yep. um, at some point in our journey. Mm -hmm. But we, we want to be a preventative tool. Yeah. But it's that recovery looks different for everyone, mm -hmm. doesn't it? We're also looking at the three and four. Mm -hmm. You know, people who are who, who are not having uh, mental health challenges, but they would be in our preventative yeah, category, absolutely. you know? So I guess I guess that the, the question is, what does prevention look like for mm -hmm. someone who maybe... Um, is maybe having you know a kind of pre-coping. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Does that make sense? A pre-coping yeah. strategy. Yeah, absolutely. Or, but with a digital uh, technology mm -hmm. in mind. When just when you were saying that, I was thinking about your app because I've got the kind of like it's like I would say the beta version. I don't yep. know if that's yep. the right term for it, but <laughs> um, and I've been using it. And and what I really like about it, and one thing that we've talked a lot about, um, Maeve and I, in terms of our past roles, is one thing that I think is. I don't want to say lacking, but something that we definitely think could be working more on as a society is on emotional literacy yes. in terms of so many young people and therefore adults as well mm -hmm. don't actually understand how they feel. They can't necessarily identify their emotions. So a lot of the time when I'm talking to young people about their self-harm behaviours for as an example, and you say, and how do you feel? And they don't actually know. They just know that the self-harm makes them feel better. They don't know why they need the self-harm. They can't necessarily pinpoint that. So I think in terms of prevention, your app is really good because it makes you think about how do I feel right now? Yeah. Where am I when I feel that? And we were talking about that, like tracking, like I always feel really crap when I'm at work like, yeah. or yeah. I always feel really rubbish when I'm at home, but I feel really great when I'm out having coffee with my friends. And that being able to actually maybe just... Start, yeah, yeah, start to build a picture of when do I feel good and when do I not feel good um, and be able to actually start to identify the emotions that you're feeling um, yeah. as well. So we talked about the, the neurochemical change that goes on for yeah. young people. You know, when you're 14, 15, the brain actually prunes itself. It actually starts to peel back. Yeah. For want of a better word. Yeah. But, you know, and, and those kind of that dose hormone exchange so dopamine oxytocin serotonin and endorphins that kind of mm -hmm. change in in the brain for young people yeah so that emotional literacy is really really important for mm -hmm. for young people to to start to um get to know and kind of make a connection with mm -hmm. and it's and it's self-awareness i think because yeah. because nobody uh no, no well not nobody people rarely stop and just and and just think uh, and and self reflect and 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 have some introspection. Mm -hmm. It's all it's all going off everywhere around them. You know the the noise is deafening. Mm -hmm. All of our senses are overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. You know how do you make sense of that? Let alone figure out who you are and what you're about and 
you know, so so the very first bit that I think we're trying to achieve is to help people grab hold of a branch and just take a moment, right? The whole moment capture for us is critical because it's cathartic mm -hmm. in a way, or it could be cathartic in by just uh, documenting it, I guess, and capturing it. You're having to think, you're having mm -hmm. to connect with yourself and you, you assume that mind and body are in the same place all the time when you look at folk walking around the streets. They're not. Mm -hmm. yep. They're not. And so so we're trying to kind of join those back together because only when there's some sense of self-awareness and joining mm -hmm. the dots and the connections about why do I feel that way when I'm with that person or mm -hmm. why do I feel so, so good when I'm over here and in that place, um, I think that's the beginning of the journey. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's something that schools I've noticed are definitely trying to work on from a much younger age now as well, because and again, if you don't have anyone who can tell you that and I get we, we've come from generations of West people in the West of Scotland who don't talk about our feelings. Yeah. So yep. like yep. nobody, nobody in my house was going to teach me to meditate and that's not and to like settle my feelings. And that's not, a you know, anything against my parents it's just not a thing that they did yeah, so now that I've learned that I can pass that on to any children that I have or any young people I work with but not everybody has those kind of influences in their life so it's about how do we start to influence young people so that we can have a kind of mentally healthier next generation of people yeah. um so that they they do know how, how to identify how they're feeling um and again starting when they're in nursery school and primary school and um, really carrying that all the way through so that hopefully by the time I mean the statistics show that what is it like a quarter of all young people experience um, or a quarter of all people who experience mental health problems start it starts before the age of 17, 17. Yeah. Wow. so yeah. if we can like you say it's preventative and I think that's something that the government's really getting on board with as well because yeah. for a long time we've been putting a lot of money into crisis intervention yes and that's great and is very needed. However, actually, we can stem the flow of the need for crisis intervention if we start with prevention um, and, and we start getting that younger. analysis again, isn't yep. it? I wanted to circle back just um, to something you said there about influence. So, you know, we're influenced by our parents, mm -hmm. you know, at the kind of very first level, people in our homes, brothers, sisters, who are maybe older or even younger, um, aunts, uncles, that kind of, you know, um, first influence. But children and young people in particular are so influenced by much more. And mm -hmm. um, I think it's Johan Hari who wrote the book Lost Connections. He talks about these bridges from our brains now mm -hmm. that are connected to, you know, all this outside world. So it's not just our brain's chemistry mm -hmm. that's changing us and how we feel now. It's all this kind of outside, you know, dynamic world now. But it's mm -hmm. not how he even viewed the world in the 1990s when he wrote, I think, the book. Um, he talks about, you know economic things and educational things but now it's social media yeah now it's uh what our friends say at the football team or the mm -hmm. you know the gymnastics club or the you know uh, roller derby or whatever they're, <laughs> yeah. they're they're involved in now or going to the coffee shop with your friends or um you know uh, there was a big bbc documentary about you know the kind of um you know nude photographs of kids being being passed around schools and it's really horrific things yeah and I can remember, I think we spoke about it briefly, about, you know, I know a young girl getting hit with a, you know, a pastry that got made at home economics class on the bus. And that was her nickname for the whole, yep. the whole of the school. I mean, and that's a horrendous thing for me to think back on because she never, she never shook that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. She never shook that, our, our whole school journey and probably didn't shake it her whole adult journey either. 
But I remember her bursting into tears on the school bus because she was so, you know, humiliated. Mm-hmm. And now when I think of, you know, anything you put on the internet stays in the internet. Yep. And now I think about all those, you know, sort of what you're exposed to. And mm-hmm. I think about all the influences that are around for young people. Mm-hmm. How, do, how do they manage that in regards to mental health and loneliness and isolation and self-harm? And are you, and they, don't. Right? <laughs> they don't. Yeah, and I'm that, wondering the, the pressure that... that yeah, it's. I have a lot of conflicting feelings about social media. Mm-hmm. I have friends all around the world, and it's so amazing that I can see what my friends in the US and Australia and all this are, are doing with their lives. But like you say, you, communities are so much bigger now. So when I was at school, I knew the people that went to the school that I went to. And maybe if I went to a club in my local town that some other kids from other schools went to, I might know a few other people from another school. Kids nowadays know every young person in a 50-mile radius because they add them all on Snapchat and it's so-and-so's cousin who goes to this school. And, they're yeah, and TikTok and, and all that TikTok stuff. TikTok yeah. and all this kind of stuff. And we talked about a, a similar situation where this news follows you. If you move to a school, any other school in Scotland, a young person from your school could potentially contact someone in your new school mm-hmm. and tell them, Everything yeah, about you. Why you've moved. Yeah. Why have yeah. you have you moved? Because something's happened. Was there bullying? Was there this? Did something embarrassing happen to you on the school bus? Mm-hmm. Everybody knows because they can just find out. Or oh, you, you're going to, you know, Inverurie Academy in Aberdeen now. So I'm going to contact this person that says on their bio that they go to Inverurie Academy. I'm going to contact them and I'm going to tell them that you're known as X because of this thing that happened to you. And it follows them around everywhere. You know, back in the day, <laughs> I say... um, if you were getting bullied at school, it stopped at 3.30 and it didn't happen at the weekends. They're now in your bedroom. They're in your pocket. Yeah. And they're inviting you into group chats and they're saying horrible things about you and you remove yourself, but you just get invited into another one and you see all these horrible things. And it is so isolating for, which is completely the opposite of what social media is supposed to do. It's supposed to encourage us to be more social with each other, but it can be so isolating for young people because it's a lot easier to be targeted as well. And not even to mention all the stuff that they're seeing online that they're trying to aspire to be, all the celebrities who are posting their beach bodies and, oh, well, I can't eat lunch now because I'm too fat or I'm too this or I'm too the next thing because they're aspiring to things that are not real because they Photoshop. Yep. Yep. all these pictures and yep. they're, they're not real and they don't actually own that Maserati that they're sitting on exactly, top of yeah, like yeah. that belongs to someone else who lives in the street and they've just taken a quick picture in front of it um you know somebody sent them all of those clothes they don't buy all those clothes themselves but for young people as you were saying their neural pathways are rewriting themselves they're learning who they are they're trying to figure out their place in the world and that's not always apparent to them that these things are not as they seem. And I suppose if you think about it, you know, for every like they get, it's a dopamine hit, isn't it? I've got young that kind people... of addictive shoot. Maybe that's a bit controversial, but it is a kind of shot of of dopamine yes, that kind yeah, of addictive. There's young people I know who will delete a picture off Facebook or Instagram if it doesn't get a certain number of likes. Wow, really? Okay. Because their self esteem is now tied, tied to, to the amount of yeah. likes that they get on a on a certain post. So I I find this uh, I, I find this quite overwhelming. Actually, and um, when you think about the size of this problem, because I think it's a problem, when you think about the size of it, it's overwhelming to me because I'm really struggling to figure out how you tackle it. And all I want to do is reach out to these people, these young people who are struggling, 
and reassure them mm-hmm. that that's not life, that okay. right? That yeah. that's not life and they're okay. And of course, there's so many instances across the globe, mm-hmm. let alone on a country or a, a town level, there's so many instances. So I just wondered what your feeling was on how we start to change it. Because if, if mm-hmm. I'm looking at it, okay, changes happened relatively qu- quickly, right? Mm-hmm. We're talking a couple of decades, really. Uh, and and it's been astronomical change of technology. And we know yeah. that yep. anything can be used for good or bad. And technology is one of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but society, governments, people are struggling to keep pace with that speed and acceleration mm-hmm. of change. And we can see it playing out yep. on how it's impacting younger people. So, you know, what, what I, you know, naturally my kind of shooting from the hip thing is, We've got to get it into schools. We've got to get it, you know, we've got to get it early. We, we've got to we've got to have some form of framework that reaches out to mass amounts of the of the population mm-hmm. and re-educates and re-educates really quick, hard and fast. Mm-hmm. Because there's there's terrible stuff going out on out there. You know, and the pastry thing is a is an example, right? People might roll their eyes on that. It's just a pastry. To that girl, yeah. Yeah. it's horrific. Yeah. Absolutely. And, 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 um, you, you know, can and say, oh, people will forget about it in aye, 10 years. Aye. 10 years to a exactly. young person is, is, is a lifetime. Because right? they can't, again, because their brains are rewriting themselves, they actually can't think no. that far. They can't see the consequences of their actions. And that's from both the young person that's happened to it and also the young people who are doing it as well. Mm-hmm. They can't actually see the consequence of their actions. But I agree with you. Education is the way forward. Like roles that Maeve and I used to have. Um, where we were in schools, we were engaging with young people, we were building those relationships and we're talking to them about mental health, about how other people are affected by it. I think also peer education is really, really important. Yep. Um, it's something that I was, the, the last school that I worked in, it was something that we talked a lot about in terms of the way that young people talk to each other sometimes and the language they use is is horrible sometimes. And again, they don't understand the impact of their words. How do we make them understand the impact mm-hmm. of their words? How can we get young people who've maybe experienced certain things in their life without, we don't want to cause any trauma <laughs> in anyone's life, but we also kind of, I think, sometimes need to be realistic of when you say these things, do you actually know what that means? Because so many young people say phrases and you go, what does that mean? And they go, I don't know. That goes I back to the emotional literacy. It education, does. doesn't it? Yeah. So I think, yeah, we need to be getting in, you know, from nursery school and teaching kids about emotional literacy and how we interact with each other and all these sorts of things and how we can just be kind to each other and understanding what other people are going through and how we can interact with them in a way that is going to be supportive as well it's just thinking and having some you know uh, it sounds basic but some respect and what you were talking about is once it's out on the internet it's on the internet right And, and 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 lives change people change but but i wonder whether there's some linkage here that explains to young people that mm-hmm. once they say something to somebody, it sticks. Yes. It sticks. It's, it's like yeah. putting posting something on the internet. It is there forever. And when you say something to somebody, it can impact them forever. Yeah. There's a couple of really good exercises you can do with young people on this. Um, one of them that one of my friends did with a group of young people was she gave them all individual because she had issues with this group of young people saying nasty things to each other. She gave them all an individual tube of glitter, different mm-hmm. colours, and she got them to pour them into a tub, mix it all together. And then she went, Paul, get your glitter back out and put it in your your jar. Mm-hmm. 
And they were like, what? And she was like, I want you to fill your jar back up with your blue glitter that you had. Oh, yep. I can't do that. And that's what she said. When you say things to people, yep. you cannot take it back. I've seen it done with like toothpaste. I've, that's really yep. messy. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen it done with like shaving foam yeah. and stuff. Or like, you know, crumple up a bit of paper, yeah, right? Get, the paper, get yeah. that piece of paper completely smooth again. You can't. And that's the whole idea that once you've said something to someone, you cannot take that back and it will affect that person in ways that you can't even you might not even be able to see um so it's about and i think that's what i enjoyed about my last role was being able to go in and do these lessons in creative ways i like to put spins on things you create games that are going to stick in the young people's minds visualize it they can visualize what we're yeah. doing like we talked about the knights and dragons game so yeah. you you move around the room and you, you pick a person in the room and they have to be your dragon okay. you don't tell anybody who your dragon is and you have to try and move away from them but they also have a dragon in the room so they're moving to get away from their dragon and you have to try and stay away and then the second round you do the same but you pick someone else to be your knight and you have to keep your knight in between you and your dragon and you can do it for loads of different things. I do it when I'm talking about self-care. So your, your, your dragon is the things that stress you out. Okay. It, sometimes it feels like there's a fire-breathing dragon chasing yep. you. Yep. So what you need is a night. You need something to be in between you and the stress. So that could be going out with your pals, playing football. You can do it for conflict management. You can do it for all sorts of things. But having these kind of games sticks with the young people. It gets in their brain. And then they go, oh, remember that? Remember that Knights and Dragons game? remember that knights and dragons game that we played and you yeah what why did we play that game what was it oh I, the dragon was the things that annoy us or stress us out and the knight was protecting us yeah and then it stuck it's in our really brain good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so really louise and i just played games for much. Two years. Yeah. <laughs> sounds <laughs> like um, a great game make a pom-pom worry monster to tell all your worries to yeah, like yeah. all these sort of, but the kids come in i used to have a jar on my desk it was called jim the worry jar and the, <laughs> the idea that you would write your get all the kids to write worries down and they would all pile them in the jar and obviously the jar is too small for the amount of kids yep, you have and yep. it overflows yep. what happens when our internal worry jars overflow that's when we have Love the eruptions that's Love when that. we have yep. that so and kids would come in and go can we see jim can we put worries in jim and things like that and it it just sticks in their brains and it gets them something to to think about and you know maybe when they're older they might think oh i remember the worry oh my worry jar's getting a wee bit full Love and it's that. just about trying to put that little seed into their brain made me feel some. better now <laughs> good yeah. made me feel better so, Jim, your worry jar is not overflowing. <laughs> so I guess that's actually quite a nice segue. So you're going into a new role. Yes. Um, you're working with um, pretty much around the country. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of specialising, being an expert on self-harm. <laughs> um, and I, I wonder, what is your concern? What is your biggest anxiety about taking on this new role working with children, young people, working with their parents, carers, mm-hmm. frontline staff. Um, I guess the two consistent things are, that we've touched on, is digital technology is, mm-hmm. is kind of here to stay. It's going to get bigger. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's accelerating, if anything. And also mental health. Is, it, we're kind of in a pandemic, mm-hmm. epidemic. Um, and I think that's really here to stay. We look at CAM statistics. We look at mm-hmm. um, all the sort of third sector mental health charities are are really fighting, you know, um, bursting at the seams with referrals. What are your concerns going into your new role um, focusing on on self-harm? That's actually kind of why I wanted to go for this role when I saw it. So I've been working with children and young people and their families for a long time now, and it's always been kind of individual or small group work based. So, you know, maybe a classroom. Uh, the, The school I used to work in, I worked in the whole learning community, so I worked with all of their 
connected primary schools. So you're talking maybe like 180 kids in terms of the first year enrollment and then odd kids throughout the school and the staff. And that's excellent. And I feel, I feel personally that I did some really good, great work in that learning community. That's one learning community. And I was talking to parents about self-harm and explaining, you know, we've, we've had conversations with parents about self-harm. And again, that's one parent that you're giving that support to. And that's great. And that's so helpful for that one individual. But I was just like, this needs to be so much bigger. This needs to be so yeah. much bigger. Yeah. So when this kind of role came up to work on a, a kind of national level in terms of self-harm, I was like, I think my concern is that my new boss is going to be like, you need to slow down because I have so <laughs> many ideas of how we can spread this across yeah. Scotland. Yeah. Yeah. But And I've talked to you about some of them, Maeve, um, and you're going to give me all your contacts so I can make it happen. <laughs> I, I might just need to have like a phased plan of how I'm going to do it. But that's why I wanted to move into this role because I was like, we need to have a national approach to mental health. You know, it can't just be individuals going into individual groups and talking to them about mental health. We need to have a strategy where everybody learns about what mental health is. Yep. Where every Because we're not going to move on. You know, self-harm is such a taboo subject. It's so, like, socially unacceptable in, in many ways um, to, to engage in self-harm and to actively say that you're self-harming. That it That is unhelpful because... People can't get the support they need because they're too scared to speak up. And it's the same for all, all mental health and all mental health conditions as well. People are too scared to say, you know, I'm having I'm having a bit of a rubbish day, actually. We just say fine. Fine yeah. is a great Scottish yeah, word. Yeah, I'm fine. Yeah. Um, but what does fine mean? It can mean anything from excellent to actually the depths of despair. Um, we need to have, like, a national approach, I think. And I, that's why I'm so excited about this role, um, to be able to go out and actually reach more people and I'll hopefully be training up other people to train right, other right. people so it won't just be me on my own traveling around Scotland delivering training to people we'll hopefully develop this network of trainers who can cover the whole country and then everybody can learn what every school can learn what self-harm is and every school can can know how to support someone as best they can once you train the trainers though what happens to the tour bus <laughs> yeah. you just my face on the side of a bus like you understood sponsors yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think it's fantastic I, I, and, and it really gives me hope again mm -hmm. that because you're you're absolutely right couldn't agree more you know the the impact that you can have in a in a small social group is phenomenal mm -hmm. because it's focused yep. um but it is only a really small group so so the the fact that you're excited about scale mm -hmm. and a greater wider impact and you you're right about education being around this topic being more prevalent so hugely excited mm -hmm. about it really yeah. excited on your behalf yeah brilliant, brilliant. and the government are actually the Scottish government are working on a new self harm strategy just now which right. is really really exciting um because that will influence as well how the media puts across that of self-harm how um because currently a lot of self-harm stats are linked to suicide stats okay. in terms of the idea that if you know people who have uh, died by suicide were or if you if you sorry um if you engage in self-harm you're a hundred times more likely to die by suicide i'm saying that as a stat that has been put across that is potentially not true not correct because again mm -hmm. these stats are quite often taken from attempted suicides mm -hmm. or you know, death, death by, by suicide, suicide. or oh, that person also self-harmed. So it's kind of an almost backwards yeah. Yeah. correlation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but that statistic is terrifying if you're a parent or a person who's engaging with somebody self who self-harms. Mm -hmm. So your young person comes home from in the school phone you and say, 
you've been engaged in self-harm and you've just read online that they're 100 times more likely to die by suicide. That's absolutely terrifying. Because it's not always the case, right? It's not, yet, yeah. And that that's why we need to be very careful. And that, that's why I think this government strategy is going to be so helpful in terms of giving people the accurate information and also giving them accurate ways that they can support people yeah. um, so that it shouldn't just be specialised support that you can get for self-harm. You should be able to talk to anybody about it and they'll know kind of strategies that they can use to, to help you. Yeah. Well, I am... Um really hopeful that the, the strategy does actually give people hope mm-hmm. and, and give people some sort of um, valuable information in, in helping their loved ones mm-hmm. um, reduce harm, yep. harm minimization, as you were talking about earlier on, yeah. um, and, and find a recovery plan for, for their loved ones yeah. that isn't... Um, isn't just broad brush and is unique to mm-hmm. to them. Yeah. And it's difficult. Like, I'm not sitting here going, oh, just let people harm themselves. Like, as a person who has people in their life that they love who engage in self-harm, it is very difficult to be like, I'm just going to let you do that. Just come to me when you're ready. Um, I, I fully understand how difficult that approach is. But if we're all in it together... Mm-hmm then that's what's going to make the big difference when you have the support from other, when you're a parent and you can go and get support from other parents who are engaging, who are experiencing the same things from organisations who know how to properly support you. That's when it's going to work as a whole. I think that's a great way to wrap it up. I think if we're all in it together, we can can move mountains. Campaign slogan. For the side of the two <laughs> You understood. All in it together. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Thanks so much, Louise, for joining us. And um, good luck in the new role. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you.